Hi, I'm Debbie. I'm an alcoholic. I'm so honored to be here. I want to thank Kay and everybody on the committee for the privilege of being able to share here this weekend. I've already got a full heart from hearing the other speakers, and I'm so pleased that I have a new friend with Claire. I just, it's, it's just been such a blessing. You want me to speak louder? Yes, ma'am. And so, <laughs> I'll do the coffee cups too. But anyway, <laughs> I'm an alcoholic and I'll, and I'll do whatever you want me to. <laughs> but anyway, hmm? <laughs> anyway, I'm I'm honored to be here, and I want to thank um, the people from the committee that put that nice little gift basket in the room, and and all the work that everybody does to put a, a nice weekend like this together. It's really a privilege to be here. Um, I so enjoyed the other speakers, and I just um, I look forward to hearing um, Parker and the other Palmer and the other speakers that I haven't heard before. Um, I got sober June 1st, 1985 in my home groups at Carlsbad Thursday night workshop in San Diego County, and my sponsor goes there, and a lot of sponsees, and I just, I love what Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon have done for my life. Um, I never felt a part of my whole life. I grew up one of five kids, and I grew up in a home where there was a lot of alcohol, and I don't blame my alcoholism on my mom, dad, or anybody else in our family tree. We just have a lot of little broken branches, but I am... Um, <laughs> There's just, I, you know, in the big book it talks about we drink because we like the, the effect produced by alcohol. And that's what happened to me. And I drank ever since I was a little kid. I would take sips of my mom and dad's beer and they'd have to pry the glass out of my hand. And, and I, um, my dad uh, let me be his little helper on a weekend. And I didn't know quite what we were doing, but we were working in the basement. And there was a pool table in our rec room down there. And my dad was drilling a hole in the side of the refrigerator. And, and I realized he was putting a tap in for a keg. And so I was like, I love my dad. <laughs> it's like, that's the best kind of dad to have. And so as a teenager, I would I would steal alcohol from my parents. And I found the neighborhood kids that drank the way I did. And, and we would always, um, on the weekends, find older siblings and stuff to buy us alcohol. And I smoked a lot of pot all through junior high and high school. Um, I got the nickname Doobie because of that. Um, <laughs> and so... And so I would go to school pretty stoned in the morning and, um, you know, it makes you relax. <laughs> so anyway, so I would smoke on the way to school because that was easier to get at that age. And I, um, in the morning, people would say, hey, Doobie, what's up besides you? <laughs> and I'd be like, oh, not much, you know. And so it was a small town in Ohio, and my parents and some of my high school friends' parents were buddies from the Elks Club. And so we were at a barbecue at their house, and um, their dad said, Hey, Doobie, how do you want your chicken? You know, And my mom yanked me aside, and she goes, Doobie, what's that mean? What's that Doobie? And I go, That's Scooby Dooby Doo. That's what that means. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> yeah, suck it up and live the lie. You know what I mean? It's like my mom still thinks that that's what that was. I had a... <laughs> I've been sober 28 years, and I had surgery a few years ago, and my youngest sister came out to spend a week with me, and my mom sent this big stuffed Scooby-Doo doll. <laughs> oh, my God. Really. Anyway, so you just keep your mouth shut. You know what I mean? Sorry. <laughs> so anyway, so I 
that's how I got through high school, and I drank a lot. I drank as often as I could, and, and I left home at 18 because my mom and I fought all the time. My mom drank a lot, and um, so did my dad, but my mom especially, and and I would sneak out and cause her a lot of heartache and worry, and we fought like two cats in a bag. We just never got along, and now I know it's because we were so much alike. And that's what it was. And she's a great lady. And I would go home for Mother's Day every year. And it's nice that I can honor my mom and live my amends. I call home every couple of days to see how she's doing in that below zero weather. And, um, you know, she's just a strong lady. And doesn't matter what alcohol does or doesn't do to people. It's like you guys, both AA and Al-Anon, have helped me see the good and the God in my mom and be grateful for everything that I taught and stopped focusing on what I didn't get and what I what I wish I had gotten. And you know what? Because of this program, I hope that, you, that I can be given my mom the kind of daughter that she wanted. So anyway, I... Um, I moved out to California at 18. I left as soon as I could. And my mom's parents, both my parents grew up in Michigan. And my mom's parents moved to Tucson for a few years. So when I moved to California, they were there, and I stopped to see them. And I didn't know until I had seven years of sobriety that my mom's dad got sober in Alcoholics Anonymous in 1947 back in Michigan. And he went to meetings. He went on men's retreats with Bill and Bob. And I'm so honored I have his first edition big book. And it's like he passed away um, before I got sober in this program. But I have those kind of things that are priceless. Um, but when I stopped to see him, Donna and I, my high school friend that I moved to California with, we stopped to see him. But we didn't want to stay long because they didn't drink. Well, they drank coffee, smoked cigarettes, and talked about God. <laughs> Should have known. <laughs> <laughs> So um, we just stayed a couple of days and then moved on to California, and Donna went back after a couple of months, and I ended up with a lot of weird roommates for a while, and I did some miscellaneous jobs, sold carpet, and did weird things just to make ends meet, and I, my parents wanted me to go to college instead of moving to California, and I just wanted out. And so I came out to California, and I finally found a drafting job because I wanted to be an architect. And there was a drafting job in the newspaper, and it was a civil engineering firm. So they hired me, and I started working there, and I loved that. I didn't want to be an architect anymore. I wanted to be a land surveyor. So I started working full-time and going to school at night, one class a semester at infinitum. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God, that really paces yourself. But anyway, I don't <laughs> I, but when you're drinking, you can't put too much on you because in the evenings, that's when you drink. And so I, astronomy's tough with alcohol. Anyway, so I had, had, had to do a do-over. I mean, it's their fault they turned the lights off. But anyway, so I, I went to school, and I was working. And, and much like Valerie, I, I so enjoyed your talk. And it's like I, I became a workaholic and everything that I had because Donna had moved back to Ohio. And I had a couple of friends out in California, but not many. And so I didn't know many people. I hadn't grown up there. So I just worked and drank, and that was my whole life. And so I would go home in the evening, have a few, go back and work until late at night. 
and it was, you know, some of the other people at work, we, we would pull long hours, and we would actually drink and smoke cigarettes in the office, and the boss didn't care as long as we worked all night. <laughs> and so I just, but what little self-esteem I had, I got from my job and pay raises and promotions, and, and I was dying on the inside. I didn't feel like I fit in there, but I knew I didn't want to tell my mom that she'd just say, come back to Ohio, and I knew I didn't fit in back there either. I just felt that loneliness and that disconnect no matter where I went. And when I drank, it took all of that away. And so I fought that, sought that feeling as often as I could. And alcohol didn't start causing me a lot of problems. I mean, it did with my, with my parents growing up, you know, being a nasty little teenager. But, um, but I couldn't see any outside reasons that alcohol was causing me any problems because I was getting promotions and I was buying material things and my house was clean and everything was in its place because I was neurotic is why it was. But anyway, um, I started... Um, drinking with a neighbor gal, and, and water seeks its own level. God had put a lot of great coworkers in my life that invited me out on dates or over to their um, houses for barbecues and stuff, and I never wanted to go because I was so terrified that if I went over there, if I drank, they wouldn't be able to stop me from drinking, and I'd make a fool of myself, and they'd find out what I was really like, and I was terrified, so it was easier to just not go and to be lonely than to go and have them reject me. So I'll just say no right now and protect myself. And they didn't know that. They just thought I didn't care about them. And so my my loneliness, you know, put a wall up, and it prevented me from the very thing that I was craving was friendships. And so, but I would always protect my alcohol. That always came first. So I met this neighbor lady, Susan, and she partied the way I did. And she was a single mom, but when she wouldn't have her son, we would drink together after work and we'd drink until you know either pass out or blackout and I made a lot of drunken phone calls I was sitting there this morning listening to Valerie I thought wish I had her mom's number (laughs) that's a sweet way to have a phone call answered in the middle of the night you know because I got a little chatty in the middle of the night anyway so, (laughs) so people not everybody likes being woke up anyway so I, you know, alcohol caused me a lot of problems. I started having a lot of blackouts and make the drunken phone calls, and the paranoia was getting worse. And so when Susan and I were talking, she said, the reason why we're so unhappy, Deb, is we don't have a hobby. She goes, we need to go deep sea fishing. And so, okay. <laughs> so, so we... We went to the Oceanside Harbor on Saturday morning. We had our coolers of beer, and people were drinking at, on the docks at 5.30 in the morning. And I thought, well, she's right. We are fishermen. Anyway, <laughs> she is smarter than I gave her credit for. And so we went out on one of these Hellgren's boats, and it was it was really fun. It's it's amazing to me now because I charter boats for my coworkers, but we go for fish. <laughs> and so anyway, but we were trolling for other things, really. So we went on this boat, and it was, you know, we were drinking before we ever got on. And it's a good thing you can rent poles because we didn't have poles. We had coolers. <laughs> and so we, um, we had a great time that day, and I loved it because right – before you ever get out in the ocean, they encourage you to throw up over the railing if the ocean causes you problems. And I thought, how nice you can blame it on the water. Anyway, and so, so I loved it, and I met, we met these guys that we partied with that day and fished and drank and flirted with, and within a week and a half, I'd moved one of them in with me. And uh, he was an unemployed IV drug user alcoholic contractor. <laughs> so, 
<laughs> I joke that he was my catch of the day. <laughs> you know, I mean, I went in a week and a half. You know, you got to get to know him. Anyway, and so it's so crazy because it's like I love being sober that because of this being sober and working my steps that that can be funny now because at that time it was insanity you can realize that anyway I didn't realize that you could anyway so I just um I had spent so much of my years when I moved away from home comparing my insides to other people's outsides and I was working twice as much to feel half as good at my job and I was dying of loneliness and drinking like a fish and comparing my insides to my sister's outsides and it's like all three of my sisters had since gotten married back in Ohio and were building houses in the country and having kids and all these buying Winnebago's and all this stuff and I thought the reason why they're happy and I'm not is because they have him so when I was on that fishing boat I thought well I'll give it a whirl <laughs> and so anyway so it, it the insanity began I should have gone to Al-Anon right there when I stepped off the boat but I didn't and so I didn't even know about it I didn't know about Alcoholics Anonymous I didn't know about Al-Anon because growing up um, that anonymity was really protected about my grandpa like I said I didn't even know that he didn't that he had ever drank let alone be an Alcoholics Anonymous um, because it was never mentioned we just knew that grandpa didn't drink and it was just you know it was real anonymous in our family and so I I went through a year and a half of absolute insanity with him not coming home and I would call the hospitals in the police station and wake his ex-wife up and ask him if he was there Asked <laughs> that wasn't good anyway um, <laughs> that wasn't a happy thanks for calling Deb <laughs> um, <laughs> And so it was just craziness, and I sometimes he wouldn't come home at all, and I would go to work, and I'd keep calling home waiting for him to answer the phone because I moved him in my apartment, so I would have control. It's my place. And then one time uh, another gal answered the phone and said he was in the shower. Who are you? Oh, my hair caught fire. But anyway, I was, <laughs> I'm glad I was 30 miles away because I'd have gone home and done damage but anyway it was just absolute chaos and heartache and I was throwing up all the time because I was a daily puker and I would daily make promises that I'm not going to drink tonight and by 10 o'clock in the morning I would eat a cup of noodles at work and start quieting the disturbance inside and then I would work all day and when I got off work I thought you know what I deserve a couple because after all I didn't call in sick and I worked hard all day and I just need to mellow out a little bit because I don't feel good and I would do it again I would drink until I passed out or ran out and that cycle just went on over and over and over for years um, I had moved him out after a year and a half well I moved him out so much I had a whole shoebox of front doorknobs because whenever <laughs> I would stop at Home Depot and get a new deadbolt because if he wouldn't come home I was going to change the locks and then I'd change them and then he'd come and his key wouldn't work and I'd be on the other side in the dark smoking a cigarette drinking a beer <laughs> you know and it was like and then he would leave and I'd go to bed and then the next day I'd call him and keep coming back <laughs> so <laughs> and start over anyway so I, I was able to buy a house a couple years ago and I the stuff that was had been in my garage for years at my rental places I looked and there was all these dead bolts <laughs> I was like oh I better donate those I'm gonna only keep one lock anyway and so 
but it's the insanity of how my life was then and how it is now is night and day thanks to the 12 steps. And I, um, I threw him out for the last time, and I had an older sibling call and say that my mom's alcoholism had gotten so bad that they were going to do an intervention back in Toledo and that my dad and my brother and my sisters had been going to Toledo weekly for these classes. And would I fly home for it, but I couldn't tell mom. And I said that I would, and I talked to the counselor back there, and she said I had to go to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting before I came home. And then I would have to come home for a week before and go to all these things that they had been doing for months. So I said I would do that because I was happy to lock her up someplace. Um, I, didn't, I didn't have compassion. I didn't have any understanding. And I wasn't the least bit aware that I was an alcoholic. And so I just wanted her to be different. And so I... I went to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. The only time I'd ever even heard of it before was from my doctor. I had been going to him for chronic stomach problems because of throwing up all the time. And he asked me how much I drank, and I thought, none of your business, really. <laughs> but I didn't say that out loud. And I, I said, just a couple. And he goes, okay, well, you might want to take a look at these pamphlets, and if you want any of them, help yourself. And he had that literature rack with all the little pamphlets in his office. I think he was prepared for me. But anyway... Um, and he gave me this prescription for this Maalox kind of stuff and left. And I looked at the pamphlets and I thought, okay, I'll take a couple of them. Like to the woman alcoholic and too young and all this stuff because I was in my 20s. And then I realized that he's trying to frame me. After I leave, he'll count them and there's probably 10 each of all of them. And then there'll only be nine. And then so good thing I was sharp. And so I didn't take any. <laughs> so I didn't. I ain't touching any of them. Anyway, so I actually fired him as my doctor. I was so offended. And so I was, and then I was close to hitting my bottom, and I, I went out, and I kept drinking like a crazy person, and I got picked up for drunk driving and had to spend the night in jail, and I made a little bit of a scene, and um, I joke, I got my own cell. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> no double bunks for me, but I even got a pack of cigarettes. So I, I um those police officers were really nice to me, and I thank God that I didn't have to kill anybody in my um, disease. You know, I drove drunk, and I drove in blackouts all the time. I'm lucky that I only had one night in jail because I deserve many, deserve many. And so I, um, I went to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting at the Oceanside Alano Club, and I went there, and this young guy that Cliff Roach sponsors now, and I've known and been friends with for 28 years, he was a young guy then, and he had all the pamphlets and the, the book, and so I thought he was a therapist, and everybody else were the sickies. And uh, the first guy that shared said, hi, I'm Fred, I'm an alcoholic. Everybody goes, hi, Fred. And I'm, like, chewing my cheek to keep from laughing. I'm like, oh, poor Fred doesn't know his name. Hi, Fred. <laughs> So let's put my mom in here. Anyway, and so I'm just judging everybody and missing the message. And afterwards, he came up to me, and he said, you didn't say you were an alcoholic. And I said, no, I just drink beer only. And then that little voice, you know, that little liar voice, it's like, you drink anything, get your hands on. And I'm, like, smiling, and I'm listening to this in my head, you know. And he goes, he goes, oh, okay. And he started smiling. He goes, let me give you my number. I thought, he's hitting on me. <laughs> and it was like... <laughs> He wasn't. He was thinking chapter three. But anyway, so he wrote his number down. He goes, well, when you do your intervention on, on your mom, why don't you give me a call and let me know how that goes. And so I went back to Ohio, and I went to an Al-Anon and an AA speaker meeting, and I watched all these videos on alcoholism. 
And I met with the counselor, and she goes, what do you think? And I was crying. I go, I think I'm an alcoholic. She goes, you may be, but we're only here for your mom. And I'm like, you got it. Only mom. I'm on board with that. I didn't say I wanted to quit. I just was crying because I was an alcoholic. I wasn't joyful about that. I was um, I was really shocked. I didn't know. You know, I just knew that alcohol was the solution to my problem, and I didn't realize it was also the problem. And so I did this intervention with my family, and my mom um, agreed to stay in that treatment center for 28 days. And my siblings all went home with their spouses, and um, my dad and I got my mom's clothes and took them back, and then we went straight to the Elks Club. And we drank, and we didn't talk about what happened, and we both needed a drink. At least I know I did, and I couldn't drink them fast enough. And we were just talking about who I should pick in the football pool and how the weather was in California and all this superficial stuff. And inside I was dying because I had just done a difficult thing and asked her to do something that I knew without a doubt I wasn't willing to do myself. And I was so self-centered. I wanted her to be the mom that I wanted, but I didn't give a darn whether I was the daughter she wanted. And it was just, and I knew that, and that conflict just made me need alcohol even more. And so I moved, I came back to California, and she got out a month later, and you guys had made a difference in my mom. She was happy again, and my mom's a funny lady, and she was playing golf again, and just a great lady. Her sense of humor was back full speed. And it was really great. She was going to meetings, and and my drinking was just spiraling me downhill. And after a few months, I admitted to her that I had an alcohol problem. And I said, but I don't want to lose my job because, like I said, my job was all I had. It was everything. And so she said, you don't have to go to a treatment center, Deb. You can just go to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I didn't know that. I thought that she was my only example. And so... By that afternoon, I realized I'd called a little too early. You know what I mean? You know how Saturday morning you kind of make those calls, you know? <laughs> anyway, so I was drinking in the afternoon, and then um, within a couple of days, I got this big manila envelope, and I had all those pamphlets in it, and I had all these 20 questions and all this stuff, and it's like my mom never asked me, did you get those pamphlets? Did you read them? Did you go to a meeting? She never once, and that was the respect that she gave me. And... Um, my, she had some surgery, and her dad, my grandpa that got sober, passed away. And a few months later, I got sober, but my mom had gone back to drinking. And it's like um, she still drinks to this day, but you know what? I can treat her with the love and respect that she deserves. And it's like I can't help my mom, but you can. And there's people in Alcoholics Anonymous in Ohio waiting for her. And it's like, and I can help your mom, and I can help your daughter. And that's what we do here, you know? We just help each other. And so I um, I had moved into this little guest cottage, and it was um, up a steep driveway behind the landlord's main house. He had a, a three-car garage and this little dollhouse on top of it, and that's where I rented the last two months of my drinking. And I had moved out from that little IV drug user a couple years before, threw him out for the last time. And I lived in there, and I was... Um, I was so paranoid at the end of my drinking for those two months that I thought people were looking in the windows, you know, tall people. <laughs> so anyway, so <laughs> I realized <laughs> that, because, <laughs> that because, you know, <laughs> they could see through the little lace curtains that I better drink with the lights off. And then I, at that time I was still a smoker, so when I took a drink, I realized they could see my face, so then I thought, only safe place is the kitchen floor. So I was drinking on the kitchen floor. I mean, 
And that's where I felt safe so they couldn't see me, whoever they were. And I was so paranoid and I needed my alcohol so bad. And it was so hard at 27 years old to get up off the kitchen floor because that's where alcoholism had taken me. And my coworkers, the surveyors at work were starting to say things like, at 7 in the morning, Deb, you might want to brush your teeth again. You still smell like alcohol. And I didn't realize it was coming out my pores. And I thought alcoholics were people that drink in the morning. And if I'm still drinking in the morning, it's really from last night, so it's still last night. Anyway, so that's not alcoholic. So that's how I talked myself out of that. But I, um, I was so drunk I would fall against the wall and fall sideways into the bathtub and couldn't get out. And it was just, I was just trying to make it to the toilet to throw up. And that's where alcoholism had taken me. And I, I had a spiritual experience. And I believe in angels because of it. Because I went to my dining room table and we were up high on top of this little hill. And I had a great view out my dining room window. And I was crying and I was at my dining room table. And I just said, God help me. And I'm so thankful that my mom taught all of us kids to say the now I lay me down to sleep prayer when I was a kid. And she taught us about God. And as we got to be teenagers, Teenagers and we'd, I'd go to church with my, some of my drinking neighborhood friends were Catholic and so they'd have to go to, to church on Saturday evening so they wouldn't have to get up in the morning. They had their choice and so I'd go with them, and I just never felt a part of in any certain religion. And my mom raised me the way she was raised, and I know that now because of of the 12 steps that God does you understanding. She goes, you can, you can find your God any way you want. Just keep it personal to yourself. And so I knew that that morning to reach out to God and I said, God help me. And that's all I said. And somebody picked me up from under my arms and I just felt like I was just hoisted up out of the chair. And I went over to the kitchen counter and I watched my hand open the phone book and I had no conscious thought of what was going on. I just watched my hand turn the pages and my fingers were at the Alano club. And I thought, that's where that AA meeting was. So I dialed the number. I just dialed in. It's like for the first time, my mind was quiet. I didn't have all that paranoia and insanity going on. And I dialed, and this lady answered. She goes, hi, I'm Judy. I'm a happy alcoholic. And I'm like, whoa, Judy. <laughs> it's like, wow, wow. Well, you don't know, but I can tell you. Anyway, so I was like, Judy, tone it down. Anyway, I don't know. She goes, can you come to a meeting right now? And I said, yes. And so I just got off the phone and I went there and I still quiet. I mean, I didn't feel good physically, but I didn't have all the insanity going on. And I just did the next indicated thing. And she met me at the door and the meeting was already going on that morning. And she pulled me in and sat me next to a lady that was knitting like like your friend right there scaring the heck out of me. She was like, clickety, clickety, clickety. Anyway, I'm sitting there watching her with these pointy little things. And I'm like, <laughs> she was so nice to me, though. And she and that was Darlene. She ended up being my sponsor for just a couple of months. And, and she went back out or whatever. But um, she pulled me in. You know, they say to those now in its fold, in the fold, in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous, AA has made the difference. And that's what you guys have done for me over the years and continue to do. And I think that's our primary purpose is to stay sober and help other alcoholics and pull them into the fold, you know, because the fringes is where we lose people. And so anyway, um, they did that that day. And Judy took a napkin and she wrote H-A-L-T on it. And she gave me that. And she goes, 
Those are things to watch for. Don't get too hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. She goes, you need to be careful of that. And she gave me her number and said to, that I could call her. And, and like I said, Darlene started sponsoring me and told me to go to 90 meetings in 90 days and to call her every day. And, and just like Valerie, it's like I would call her in the morning. I was having anxiety attacks, and I was just like couldn't even catch my breath. And she said, make the bed and call me back. Take a shower, call me back, and go to work and stay all day and call me back. And I did all those things. And she taught me to start eating dinner because I would come home from work and I'd chain smoke cigarettes and drink a whole pot of coffee and talk on the phone to my phone list people and go to the media and I'd be like, you know, you know, because I liked a lot of sugar in it too. You know, I was just like, I had AAADD. I was like, whoa, what? So I, like, <laughs> I was missing the message. It sounded like Charlie Brown's mom up here. Wah, 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 you know, <laughs> all worried about, you know, who's dating who and all this. Anyway, I was missing the message. So she said, perhaps you would like to eat dinner after you get home from work. <laughs> Put a little food in there. And so anyway, so I started doing that. And she just taught me about taking care of myself and, and Judy was, it was great because she said that, she goes, Deb, what I do is I get on my knees every morning and I ask God to remove the obsession and desire to drink. And I get on my knees at night and I thank him for another day of sobriety. And I've done that every day for all these 28 years because it works and it's worked every day since then. And in the beginning though, Judy said, you know what, if you don't believe in God, believe my God's big enough for the both of us. And so I was like, okay, I got on my knees the next day and I said, Judy's God, please remove the obsession and desire. And I did that because I so, I, like I said, I was raised that there was a God, but I thought because of the, the moral values and the way that I was living my life that went against everything my parents, not just what they taught me, but what they showed me, I knew right from wrong and I'm so grateful to grow up in a home where I was taught right from wrong and it's like in a work ethic and how to keep a nice home and pay your bills on time and shovel the elderly person's driveway just you know I was taught a lot of good tools for living just emotionally I was a wreck and so I prayed to Judy's God because I thought he didn't want to hear me. I was on a blacklist. And after about three days, it was working. I thought, well, I want my own God. So I started praying to mine, and it worked just as good. And so that's how I started on my journey. And it's like I knew I was alcoholic, and my life I didn't think was completely unmanageable because I still had that job. And my house was clean, and, and everything was paid, and all those kind of tools that I thought were to make me successful and what I found out after a couple of years right how unmanageable I was on the inside all my emotions and I was just a train wreck on the inside but things on the outside were looking okay and and being um being willing to take direction and turn my will and my life over to the 12 steps was how I became restored to sanity and I trusted you guys to do that for me and turning my will and my life over to God I my sponsor made me Write, write down on a piece of paper, draw a line down the middle, and on the left side, write what I hope God is, and on the other side, what I hope he isn't, and critical, and keeping a blacklist of who did all the bad things, and unforgiving, and, and loving, and unconditional, and all those things, and then she said, tear it in half, and throw away your old idea, and get rid of that, Deb, and hang on to that, and you're idea of God will change and expand over time, but that's a good start. And that's what worked for me. And in the 12 and 12, it talks about that all we need is a key of willingness and that door open. And even though self-will can slam it shut, it, as soon as we pick up the key of willingness again, it'll open. And, and I was taught to get busy doing your fourth step and that you're as sick as your secrets. And, and I did my inventory and I did a, 
I just did like an autobiography in the beginning. It was the best that I could do. And the sponsor that I had at that time, um, she wasn't a big book person. And so I just did it. And it was enough to get rid of some of the garbage. And I was taught it's like peeling an onion. It got rid of, of a few layers, you know, with a lot of tears. But it was going to take more work to get deeper and deeper. And I switched sponsors after I had that gallon um, to a lady who was really into the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And she showed me the columns and helped me understand them better. I'm like, I don't get this whole brown thing, you know, snub Jones, who's, who's all these people? Anyway, so, but she helped me understand them and helped me by taking some things going on in my life and show me by example how to do it. She showed me, and uh, she shared with me her experience, and I went through that, and, and I didn't leave anything out. And I was, because the book says we're building a foundation, and I want mine to be on concrete. I want a solid foundation. I dated this guy. Um, we were friends for like 11 or 12 years, and he was a really great friend to me in this program, and he was... Um, somebody that had gone in and out many times, but we always stayed close friends. We had the same warped sense of humor, and I made a decision based on self, too, because he wanted to take it to a different level and, and date. And I was having surgery for the first time, and I thought, if this doesn't work, who would I want to spend my time with? And, and that was a selfish decision, and it became absolute insanity. I should have gone to Ellen on then, <laughs> but I went promptly after that because um, it was insanity being with somebody in and out and not knowing what was going on. And it almost took me to the cleaners with 20 some years of sobriety, just emotionally train wrecked me um, because of doing all the things that you hear laughed about in as past tense and they were my current tense. And so it was just, it was hard to, to do that with um, years of recovery. So anyway, um, but when I was doing my inventory and I shared that with Jody and she helped me label my defects of character and showed me how to go home and spend an hour of quiet time and look over the first five steps to make sure I didn't leave anything out and do my sixth and seventh step. And I love how Scott Redman always talked about step seven because it helped me understand how to bring that into my daily life better because he said, what defect of character in me, if it was removed, would make this situation better? And it helped me to apply that easier to my workplace and, and different situations that were still plaguing me. Um, and I made my eight-step list, and I made my amends, and some were living amends, like with my family, after making direct amends to them, and paying back the money, and I paid back the money to the ice cream place that I stole it from, and I was, I was taught the first time to pay it anonymously to charity, and for years that bothered me, because even though I paid it back with interest, um, like I was taught that whenever people would talk about financial amends, I never felt clean, because I never paid it back to who I took it from, and so um, Dr. Paul was my sponsor for a few years before he passed away, and, and I told him about it, and he said, you know what, just redo your amends. So I was fortunate I was making better money, and I got that money together and went back to Ohio and, and made that amends, and it, it went beautiful. And I just, I was so afraid to do that. And it was so well received. The guy, um, he said, I don't know if you know it, but I have cancer, and, and I just sold that ice cream place. And, and he lovingly let me off the hook. He said, you know what, Deb, he goes, the 60s and 70s. 70s were rough on everybody. I'm like, okay, thank you. Here's your money. <laughs> but the thing that I loved is that I knew I would have felt clean after I left, whether it was well well received or not, because I did the right thing. I paid it back to who it was owed to. And so 
the financial amends really were, it was scary, but it was easier than doing the living amends to people who are still drinking and that kind of stuff. Because then I think, you know, well, if you would, you know, I would do a thorough 10 step, usually theirs, <laughs> and then, then get to mine. <laughs> I'm working two programs, mine and theirs. <laughs> and so anyway, um, that was harder, and, and it has been. Just recently, in the last few months, it's been so good with all of my siblings. And it's like I've been talking to all of them really often. And my brother um, just bought a plane ticket to come out and see me for the first time in, like, 12 years. And so he's coming next month, so I'll get to spend a weekend with him. And I put together a fishing trip, and hopefully we'll get fished, but I won't have a new roommate. Anyway, I <laughs> So it's nice that I can do that, and I go home for Mother's Day and do that kind of stuff. And, you know, I heard a speaker early in sobriety, and she said, if I made a list of everything I wanted, I would have shortchanged myself. And I thought, boy, you're cheating yourself because I'm a list maker. <laughs> so I went home, and I made a list that night after her, and I wrote, I want a husband and a house, and I want to go to Alaska and Europe, and I want to pass the LS and LSIT exams to be a licensed land surveyor, get my degree and have kids. I wanted six kids. And I, um, I no, hadn't quite taken step two yet. Anyway, so I, <laughs> but I realized later on, you know, because I got a couple of those things. I bought a house just a couple of years ago and I got my degree in survey. It took me 10 years for my two year degree. Like <laughs> easy does it, you know? And so I, <laughs> but taking one class a semester, it kind of drags it on. But I, um, I, yeah, I went to Europe a couple of times in sobriety and, and got some of those things. But the thing is, and I still, I, I don't mind the things that are on that list. They're, they're nice things to want, but they're all outside of me. And I didn't realize that until I had a lot of years of sobriety that what that really was was a list of my old ideas of what I thought would make me happy. And none of them were things that nobody can take away from you. You know, what you give me with the promises and stuff are things that I truly want now. I didn't want those in the beginning. I thought you guys made a pretty big deal out of some of that stuff. I thought, ooh, comprehend serenity, woo-wee. Anyway, I am like, how about a house, you know? And so <laughs> I was just, you know, because I still was caught up in the outside stuff, you know, and you guys taught me different. And, and at seven years of sobriety, I thought, well, I want to go to Europe, you know, and I'm going to do it just like you taught me. I'm going to do it a day at a time. Because when I was new, Judy taught me that. And she was such, she never sponsored me, but she taught me so much. She was a beautiful lady. And I would call her up in the middle of the night. You know, I had a, a few weeks of sobriety, I guess, at that time. And I called her up and I said, Judy, you don't drink ever? Not, not Christmas or your wedding day? And she goes, well, are, are you engaged? And I go, no. She goes, well, won't worry about that. And so I said, okay, and got me back in the moment, you know. And I said, not Christmas even? She goes, honey, it's June. <laughs> so she goes, we do this a day at a time. And she goes, in fact, you can drink tomorrow unless you wake up tomorrow and it's today. Love you, bye. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> You know, if you call them and you wake them up, that's what you get, you know. And so anyway, but she taught me about living a day at a time. And so when I decided to go to Europe, I thought, I'm going to do it a day at a time. And I'm going to go all over England and Scotland. And I love golf, so I was going to go to St. Andrews and do all that. And and I, I got there, and you guys taught me to um, go to World – you can get the World Service Directory and find out where meetings were ahead of time. And I did that, and I, um, I went to a first – a meeting my very first night there and it's funny before I went several months before this old British guy showed up at my Monday book study and and I didn't tell him 
you know, that I was afraid at that time, but we became pen pals. And this lady at my home group said, you're going to Europe alone, not with a tour group? There's pickpockets there. And I'm like, oh, great. Now I'm afraid. You know, I wasn't, but thanks so much, you know, <laughs> putting that joy in my heart. And so anyway, so I was writing to Brian, and I didn't say anything about pickpockets. That would be offensive. But I, I just said I was a little bit afraid coming over there traveling as a single gal. And he wrote me back, and he said, Deb, God lives this side of the pond. And he said, if you don't if you don't mind, why don't we meet your third day in London for a meeting in Chelsea and go to dinner? And would you speak at my home group in Bristol on your last night? And so I had two AA commitments, and I hadn't been there yet. So I was, like, so joyful. And I, I went to London, and I went to a meeting the very first night by myself. And I got there early because you taught me to do that. And I'm a big tea drinker, and so I got there early, and they make these huge pots of tea there, and so I'm helping the ladies in the kitchen, and we're making tea, and all of a sudden, this church fills up, and I crammed in, and I got in my seat, and the tea lady was at the end, and she's like, come here, come here, come here, so I'm like, go back out, and I go, yeah, and she goes, mind your wallet, love, the man next to you is a pickpocket. and introduced myself and it appeared as he was a homeless man and he was so nice and he was shaking and I knew the difference and I cried like I do now because it was so amazing that she was looking out for me and that I knew that if he stayed sober he wouldn't be a thief anymore either and that I was a thief just like him I just did it differently and dressed differently and so it was just really a beautiful experience and then I met with Brian and we went to a meeting and and then I I rented a car and went on trains and drove all over on the other side of the road. I'm like, I was shifting with my left hand and it's like, I can do this because when you grow up in Ohio and the driver is busy rolling a joint, you got to shift for them. And so, <laughs> there it is. You channel that old habit. I could shift left hand. And so, <laughs> I could I could do it. No problem. Anyway, and so, <laughs> everything comes in handy. And so, <laughs> we will not regret the past. <laughs> Um, so I had a great time there, and a couple years later, I decided to go to Europe, you know. And I had lived in Germany when I was a kid for two and a half years in Nuremberg, and so I decided to go there by myself. And I got a great ticket, and before I left, I got sick and passed out on the bathroom floor twice. And I went to the doctor, and he did – I went back to that same doctor that I fired, by the way. And he became a, a great friend, and I got to thank him for putting that AA literature out and help plant the seed. And um, – and so anyway, they tested my blood and found out that I was really anemic. And he said, take high doses of iron. You better be careful on this trip, and you're really tired, and watch out. And then I got in a car accident and went to the hospital, and, and I was okay. And got another rent-a-car, and I came back, and they tested my blood, and they said, yeah, you're not anemic anymore, but you have a rare blood disease. And so I, for 11 years, I was on and off steroids, and being jacked up on those things made me a crazy woman. And... Um, I didn't sleep much, and I really had a hard time because I had to slow down a little bit in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm thankful Dr. Paul was my sponsor for a few years um, before he passed away. And he, because he was a double winner, he taught me about that. And he said, you know what, you, if you don't start saying no, it'll kill you. And so I had to cancel all my commitments, both local and out of town, to speak. And he said, you're not allowed to tell him why. And I'm like, 
I thought that would kill me. I mean, I had to just, I had to write no on a piece of paper and stand up when I made the phone call so I could do it because I was terrified. And because the first few times I did it, I said, well, this is my platelet count and this is what normal is. And you can see I'm really sick and this is why I have to cancel it. And he goes, clearly you didn't understand me. And I'm like, oh, yes, sir, I did. I won't do that again. <laughs> he goes, you don't owe him a reason. You just take care of yourself. And so I did my regular meetings and I was up and down with that. And, and the thing that I, that I did not wrong. It was the best of, that I could do at that time, I guess. But I allowed my faith to start going up and down with my platelet counts. Either God's going to heal me and the numbers would go up and I'd be grateful. And then they'd go back down and I'd be devastated thinking they didn't care. And I'm not working a program. And I should have done a thorough step three. And I just made myself a crazy woman. And I did that for a lot of years, years. And so I... Um, I called a friend one morning, just whacked out on the steroids, and I said, I was just having a total panic attack, and, and he said, you'll be all right for the rest of today, though, won't you? And I just started crying. I was like, I forgot to live one day at a time totally forgot to live in the present moment where God hides. And so I just started thanking him every day, whether my counts went up or down. And, you know, they took my spleen out, and that's when I got in that relationship, and that spun me a different way, sideways. But I, um, that worked for me for several years, and then just last year I grew another spleen. Oh, go figure. So I had to have another one out. <laughs> so... I, um, I went through that again, but this time I didn't spin out as bad. And it's like, you know, last week they went down again, and it's like, you know what? didn't spin me at all. It's like, you know, God's either everything or he's nothing, and I'm going to trust him, and I'm going to live in the present moment to the best of my ability, and I'm going to try and sponsor people and, and help them and do what you taught me to do and give back what I was freely given. And it's like, I'm so proud to be a member of a program that, you know, you give them your worst stuff and it helps somebody, you know, and it lets them know that they're not alone. And you guys let me know that I wasn't alone. And before I end, I just want to tell you this God thing with my grandpa because, like I said, I didn't find out until he got sober, you know, until I had seven years of sobriety. My mom told me that grandpa had gotten sober back in 1947, and my grandma was still alive then, and I got to speak at a, at a conference, and there was a gentleman there from uh, New Mexico, and he was leading the meeting, and... Roger Daniels. Roger and Annie live in New Mexico to this day. And um, anyway, he, over the weekend at that conference, he said, I want to talk to you about your grandpa because my uncle got sober in Michigan around the same time. Maybe they knew each other. And in my head, I said, are you kidding me? The mitten is big. Anyway, and so, but I thought, yeah, that, that, yeah, that's great. Let's talk about him. And so I saw him the other night at that conference. And he said, well, what, sober, what town did your grandpa get sober in? And I said, well, it's this little tiny town outside of Jackson called Vandercook Lake. He goes, that's where my uncle's from. And I'm like, oh, my God. He goes, call your grandma and ask if she, if she remembers him. And I go, okay, because my grandma was alive then. She died at 95. But anyway, so um, I said, what's his name? And he said, Roy Drinkwine. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I'm like, God, is that the best name? I'm like, I want to be Doobie Drinkbeer. I called my grandma, and she answered, and she had had heart surgery. I'm like, oh, sorry about your heart, grandma. By the way, anyway, <laughs> I go, I, do you remember a man by the name of Roy Drinkwine? And she goes, 
Well, yeah, Roy and Frida Drinkwine lived one street over on McDevitt. She goes, when your grandpa's drinking got so bad that I had to throw him out of the house, she said, Roy Drinkwine was the man who carried the message to your grandpa. And I'm like, oh, that's so, I love you, Grandma. Bye. Click. And I got dial Roger. I go, Roger, we're related. And it's like, <laughs> he was crying. I was crying. His wife was crying. And it's like, we got to um, go hear Mel B. from Toledo, who knew my, my other grandpa and was best friends with Roy Drinkwine speak up in Toronto at that international convention and it's like just what a small world this is and it's like you know I just got to speak in Midland about a month ago and Laura hosted me and she was great and got to be with Palmer as like I'd never met you before and it was so great and then I'm like oh my gosh I get to hear him again and it was so neat and and just what a small world it is and I just I love that you and Al-Anon and an Alcoholics Anonymous have given me a design for a living that works, and you love me no matter what. Thank you.